Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Elixir Mix. On our panel today is Alan Wyma. Kong. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Yeah, it's still wicked early over there, isn't it? Yeah, it's about, it's exactly 6.30. So, yeah, still Ooh. early. Yeah, it's 4.30 in the afternoon here, just wrapping up the day. But, yeah, put in a, a long day of, here's how the app works, and, well, here's here's all the stuff you have to change now so we can deploy it in, like, two days, so... That's been my day. How's your day going so far? Well, it started, so, uh, but last night was pretty brutal because we had some infrastructure issues. So oh, man. we've been trying to use, well, we were trying to use uh, Kubernetes, right? Ooh. And, uh, learning our ways around that. But I, I think that brings us up to our, our topic that we want to talk about, which was deployment, right? Yeah, absolutely. Deployment, deployment is easy yet difficult. You know, like last night was quite difficult for me. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's funny, too, because... You get into deployment, and we were talking a little bit about this before when we were talking about deployment, but I have some friends that they just want to write apps, right? So when when they talk deployment, it's like, well, I just go to Heroku and I just push it live, right? (laughs) You get pushed. Um, But maybe they've got, like, what is it? Uh, They've got Redis out there somewhere on, like, Redis screen or something, and they use that for queuing or something like that, which in Elixir isn't so much a thing, right? (laughs) But in like the Rails apps, they've got that kind of thing going. So they've got some third-party thing out there. And, and that's about it, right? That That's as impressive as it gets. And then you've got other people who are out there, yeah, doing the Kubernetes thing. So I'm, I'm a little curious, what, where do you come down? Is it is it mostly the Kubernetes or do your clients kind of dictate that? Or how does that come up? Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. For the for the past couple of years, it's just been one client on VPS, the other one on Kubernetes. The nice part about Kubernetes is like once you have like your kind of master files of YAML, mm-hmm. you just basically copy paste, change a couple things here and there, and then just apply, 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 and then you're done. And once you've got everything set up, it's good. But once something goes bad, it's it's bad, at least for me, because I'm not, <laughs> no, no expert in Kubernetes, as you can see. So we, the thing that happened to us was that we wrote up some Python services for this client of ours, and it just started going haywire. And we just aren't equipped to know what's going on because we get a 409 error. What the heck is that? Not even clear at all. So I just said, forget about it. Let's just rewrite this part in uh, Elixir. And then uh, the reason that we had an issue is because we had to basically regex part of the uh, URLs out and send that over to the service in Elixir. And it wasn't working. So I had no idea what's going on. We, we tried Google, Google, you know, of course, we did everything a programmer does, right? Google, Google, Google. Yep. And finally, I found out we're missing something called an annotation. So it's like putting a little meta, meta thing on it, meta tag on it, and that solved everything. So I fixed it last night about, I don't know, 10 p.m. typical. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean... Kubernetes is nice because if, I mean, if you can create an image, right, you can run that anywhere, even on a straight Docker host, right? Have you played much around with uh, Docker? 
Oh yeah, I love Docker. The Docker Compose stuff is my friend, it, and it's nice too because, for example, if you if you're dependent on a database, you're dependent on maybe a caching layer. You you want to get your load balancing figured out or anything like that. There are Docker images for all that stuff, and you literally just tell it which image you want. It'll pull it down. They usually have some pretty normal configs. And so I can run all that stuff on my dev machine and my dev machine, you know, plays nicely together with all that stuff. And so now then once it's all set up and I know what it all looks like, then I can turn around and I can deploy all that stuff up to the cloud. And yeah, I know what it looks like. And it mostly looks the same as it looks like on my dev setup. And so the works on my machine kind of just kind of disappears. And so, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I haven't gone so far as to set up my own Kubernetes clusters or anything like that. I wouldn't set up my own. It's it's very difficult. I, I, at least I think so, unless I had the time. I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure involved with making it work. So I think just going to a provider like DigitalOcean or, or Amazon EKS is a much better way to go. Then you just you get your service running, then you just use your kubectl command, just apply, apply, apply. I, I guess, you, have you ever seen how it all works or no? Like what you need to do? So I have a confession to make. I'm one of the hosts on Adventures in DevOps, which we record at the same time of day, except on Wednesdays. So I'll be recording that this time tomorrow. And we tend to, you know, run the gamut. Uh, one of the hosts is a security guy. So we talk a lot about security. The other guy, we talk a lot about more about kind of the DevOps movement. So yeah, you know, it's kind of a mix, but we do get into like kind of the Docker and, and some of that stuff too. But yeah, I haven't gotten so much into kind of the setting up clusters in somebody else's Kubernetes yet. I do have a DigitalOcean account. Also, in full disclosure, I'm probably going to get a check from DigitalOcean here within the next couple of days for sponsorship. But all that said, I really like their service. I've been hosting on them for years and years and years. And I've been kind of eyeing their Kubernetes setup as, as something that I want to kind of push stuff to. Because the nice thing is, is it's like, okay, I'll go run my infrastructure up there. And, and I also like their cloud database setup because I don't have to go manage all that stuff. I don't have to manage the server or anything. It's just like, oh, grow as big as I need you to grow. And then for the rest of it, yeah, it's like, oh, now I need three of you, right? So go spin another one of these, right? And then load balance them. Yeah, I, I've been on, I love DigitalOcean. Like the main reason I like them a lot is because it was very predictable pricing. Like you go to AWS and you're like, okay, what? What what is what? Okay, how how much is it gonna cost me? And then the clients will come up to you for me, and then they'll say, "How much does hosting cost me?" And you're like, "Uh, yeah, I I I don't know. Like, is are you want to be in Oregon? Do you want to be in in you know New York? Do you want to be in London? It's different pricing. And how much of the service you're gonna use? How much you're gonna store? I mean, these kind of questions is so difficult to to answer. Just an ocean, you got a big list, right? It's pretty much this is what it's gonna cost you around. Of course, you might get overages from heavy people, and they're not gonna complain. But that's the big thing for me. And also, when I, the Kubernetes on, on DigitalOcean, I think is really nice. So I used to use EKS, or no, I still use EKS, but EKS is Elastic Kubernetes Service from Amazon. And there's a shared responsibility model where actually you're also in control of like the, what they call the worker nodes. So I don't know, do you know the, at a high level how kind of the, a little bit how it works or? No, I haven't really dug into that at all. So from what I understand, again, I may be a little bit wrong, but there's like this thing called a control plane. And then mm -hmm. that's going to be involved in kind of like orchestrating the worker nodes. And yeah, so, but actually you, in EKS, you still have responsibility to make sure the worker nodes are working okay. 
And I had like four bad notes for one client in succession. And I had okay. to literally get on support with AWS and walk through and figure out what's wrong with them. And still to this day, I have no idea what happened. It's never happened again, thank God. But with DigitalOcean, like you just apply and you're done. And there's no yeah. way to even log into the servers. And I, that's that's uh, that's exactly what I want. Here's my container. Here's the configuration. You run it. I'm done. Like that's that's all I want to do. Yeah. I don't want to deal with anything. Yeah. And DigitalOcean is also getting ready to launch a service that looks a whole lot like Roku. So I, I don't know what kind of support they're offering for Elixir just yet. But yeah, they're sponsoring for JavaScript Jabber because JavaScript is one of the languages they're supporting right out of the gate. So. The DigitalOcean apps, right? So yeah, they've they've already launched that a while back. Actually, I've actually used it for something. So I created, a, I used Flutter to create a simple HTML app, and then uh-huh. I just pushed the code and it just launched it. It's actually running right now on on, on Kubernetes, or sorry, on on the app. So it works works quite okay. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You just get push. I mean, similar like you said. I think yeah, but there's a limitation what you can do for free. Uh, I'm just using the free right. tier. I don't. I don't think the pricing is very competitive though, unless they changed it recently. Yeah. Well, Heroku is not priced very competitively compared yeah. to just running your own thing. I mean, it gets expensive pretty fast. But as compared to I don't know hiring your own IT guy, it's just pretty competitive. So I mean, it just yeah. it's just down to what you want to pay for, and what you want to do on your own. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a partner for DigitalOcean, and I saw some people kind of a little bit upset with kind of not having a good experience on there. I don't know what the details were. For me, it was pretty straightforward to deploy HTML. Something with a database, I'm not too sure. I hope I hope it's, I mean, it just came out recently, so I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if there's some headaches. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty cool looking. But yeah, as we get into deploying Elixir apps in general, and Phoenix in particular, I, I'm pretty interested in because there are some use cases that I'm looking at Phoenix for, even though I generally, when I'm writing web applications, I, I go for Ruby on Rails. Just because the performance characteristics between the two, yeah, Phoenix is more per- performant in general, but I find that I'm not getting enough traffic and Rails performs well enough to where I can, then it's just down to, okay, what what can I move fast and break things with? And I'm much more efficient in Rails. There are a few things where I think I'm going to be seeing enough traffic and I'm going to need to scale up quickly enough to where I'm I'm really looking at Phoenix and thinking, okay, you know, am I going to need some of these other features or some of these other performance characteristics? In particular, one of the things that I really want to build is something that's going to actually track podcast downloads, stuff like that, right? And so something that's going to pass through millions, thousands or millions of, of hits, you know, per day. Again, something maybe serving RSS feed, same thing, right? You know, tracking that and and then uh, processing a pipeline that does analytics and things like that. I I think Phoenix is probably better suited for than Rails. And so I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, you know, what's kind of the state of the art as far as like web servers and how do you set that up? You know, even within Docker, you know, there's usually an, okay, I'm going to set up something, you know, maybe run it behind an Nginx proxy. What what are people kind of using for, for those kinds of setups? Yeah, I mean, it depends. I think a lot of people are still leaning upon, upon Heroku, surprisingly, right? Because it's it's just built up such a solid community with the Rails, or sorry, yeah, Rails and Ruby people, right? Right. That people still lean on that. I, I, I There is a deployments channel on Slack for Elixir mm-hmm. Slack. And a lot of people, and most of the questions on there are really about, I think most of the questions on here are really about like uh, Heroku. 
that becomes a little bit more complicated because you have to use these things called build packs, which they're still a little bit like magic to me, but I guess it's like a recipe about how to create something like a container, but not quite a container, a slug, I think they're called. So, but there's also like Gigalixer, which is similar to, have you heard of Gigalixer before? They're similar to Heroku. Right. I have heard of them. I haven't really looked into them, but let's say I'm a total cheapskate and I don't want to pay for Heroku because I, you know, and I don't, maybe I don't want to pay for Gigalixer either, you know, maybe I want to set up Docker container or I want to set up a VPS or something like that. Yeah. What What is that? Yeah. I just sent you a playlist that I created that goes through VPS with Nginx, deploying to Heroku, deploying to, I may include on here, deploying to Gigalixer, deploying to Kubernetes, how, how I do all that kind of stuff. I think those are just the big ones. It's like Heroku, Gigalixer, VPS, those ones. I think I can't imagine there's much more than that. I mean, of course, Docker container, but that one, once you build the container for Kubernetes, you can run it on Docker. Right. Should be straightforward. So is there anything else? I mean, I can't think of any other way to deploy apps these days besides those right. few. There is a, another way, now that I think about it, is that somebody came up with a way, Bakeware. Have you heard of Bakeware? That is also interesting. I think I have, but I'm trying to remember like, when and where. Yeah, you can compile Elixir for like your machine somehow here. I'll drop it in there. That's funny. Bake, 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 bakeware on GitHub. Oh, funny. yeah. Bake, bake, bake. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah. can compile Elixir? Yeah, some, well, Elixir is always compiled, right? But you can compile it to an executable somehow. Yeah, they, I mean, as you can see, this this is by like the somewhere some people in the nerves team. Mm -hmm. It was a hackathon project that they worked on, and I guess it's working, but they haven't touched it since April, it looks like. Right. So if you're standing this up with... So you want to talk about VPS deployment, right? Yeah, VPS, the best thing to do would just be to, in my opinion, is to run eDeliver. So eDeliver is just a fantastic kind of tool. The way it works is kind of like it, there's a mix task, so it's similar to like rake. And you say like mix build, man, I can't remember what the commands are, but it's like mix start deploy or something like that. And it'll go through, like you have to define your, your server where you want to build things because right. if you're working on your Mac, but you're deploying to Linux, it's like uh, you have to compile on the same architecture. Yep. So sometimes, like if, obviously if you have a busy production server, you don't want to be compiling a code on there because that could be very taxing, right? Mm -hmm. So you would have a build server, you would just run it, log into that server remotely, compile it, tarball it, bring it down, and then put that onto the production server, untarball it, turn on the turn off the old one, turn on the new one, and it just keeps going, right? Huh. For eDeliver, you also have the ability to do hot code upgrades. Right. So you can, yeah, you can just you know upgrade it while it's still running it has that already built into it pretty simple to do well i mean it's simple in the ideas but i've never actually done it because yeah i don't really have the need right it's really interesting just kind of looking through this e-deliver right e-deliver is pretty cool mm -hmm. you have to have distillery though they require distillery distillery with is not really required for deployments anymore because now releases are built into elixir just do mixed release but be but the default release within Elixir that's built into it doesn't include anything about hot code upgrades. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's more things. There's a couple more niceties that that uh, sorry that uh, Distillery brings, but that's like the biggest one, I think. Right. So so what's, what's your process? Oh, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, what else that Distillery brings is like hooks. So you know I have to run database migrations, right? Mm -hmm. So you can create a hook. So as soon as it started, the app is started up or before it starts up, you can run the database migrations. So you don't need to run two commands. You just run, just start the app and then it'll just run hooks for whatever you need. Right. Or maybe you want to send a Slack notification to let 
people know that the new app is up, right? Right. Whatever you want to do. Interesting. Yeah. You're asking my question, what do I usually do? Yeah. Yeah. For me, I, I try to stick to Kubernetes as much as possible. Just makes life easy. Because like I said, once you have your kind of master configuration files, you just kind of copy paste and then change the configuration to what you need, which right. domain name, all these things. And then there's a command called kubectl, apply. You just apply them all and you're ready to go. Even from there, I'm actually starting to back away a little bit too, because I just started playing around with one client. I moved them off of VPS to Kubernetes EKS, and we're uh -huh. using GitLab. And the GitLab has this auto-deploy stuff, and you can add EKS cluster. It's very nice. It's very smooth. But there is a little bit of weirdness to what I'm used to. The weirdness is like namespacing. So you can always namespace your apps. And I usually just use the default namespace, but they change it to another namespace like depending on your URL and stuff. Yeah, so it's a little bit weird. Other than that, the process is very smooth. I'm pretty happy with it. So, because it's nice just since Heroku came out, I think nobody really wants to deploy manually, just get push and then let the CI right. server take care of it. So that's what I try to do. No, that makes a lot of sense. GitLab has a lot of really nice tools in it. Um, I think I mentioned nice. it last time I was on here. GitLab is like, I haven't been looking at it. I started looking at it again. I'm like blown away with all the stuff that they loaded in. Yeah. Yeah, last time I looked at it, I think I got a little bit overwhelmed, but they've got so much nice stuff in it because you can, yeah, you can run your CI in it. You can, yeah, all kinds of stuff. So what, is there a, a like a Docker image that you usually start with when you're doing your Kubernetes setup or, or how do you usually get started with that? So originally I was using Bitwalker's image, but I slightly, actually I modified his. I have my own that I keep try to keep up to date that's actually based upon his. So the reason I did this is because the way he the way he updates his is he kind of like Erlang keeps getting updated all the time. There's always like a right. new patch release. There's actually just a new patch release I just saw this morning, 2402, used to be 2401. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Erlang is the kind of the first step. The next step is Elixir. And then the next step of that would right. be Phoenix, right? Well, once Erlang gets updated, which happens faster than Elixir, then you have to kind of rebuild all the next containers. So uh, usually he'll patch the Erlang one up. And then he he may he doesn't usually patch up the next one. So if you compile with yeah, if you compile with like so if you if you you know how you usually use latest, mm -hmm. yeah. So if if like let's say it's like Elixir twenty four or sorry Erlang twenty four oh one, Elixir one twelve just came out, so you're using one twelve. But maybe there's a bug and then they make a new patch release. That's why this twenty four oh two came out, right? So it's affecting your work, right? So you're just saying okay, I'm using latest. Looks like he created a new Erlang one. We should be ready to go. Well, right. he doesn't always update the Elixir one. So Erlang will be updated, but not the Elixir one because there's no right. a new Elixir version yet. Right. Sometimes this happens, right? But that's been my experience, right? Is that some things are like a little bit outdated. And so what I do is to make, the, make it much easier is that to kind of avoid this problem is that I actually mark mine very specifically. So I say, okay, this is Erlang 2401. This is... Elixir with Erlang 2401. This is Elixir 112. And then this okay. one is Phoenix with Erlang 2401, Elixir 112. And I don't actually mark it which version of Phoenix because it doesn't really matter most of the time because it's still going to take it from your mix file. Mm -hmm. So I actually see people, quite a few people are actually using my, my thing. It's probably not super popular, but I'm mostly concerned is about it, myself, right? Is it on Docker Hub? Yeah. So I can I can kind of share my org, I think, if you want to show people. Yeah, this, this one, I think, is, like I said, it's pretty... But yeah, that's how I do it. So I use my own. But then they have the deployment guides for 
the deployment guides for for Phoenix is really really good. I don't think you've seen it yet, but it's quite quite clear. Yeah, they have a whole section about deployment, and uh, not even that. Actually, it's more than one section. Technically, it's a bunch of pages like Big Elixir, mm-hmm. Heroku releases, which is what you need. So that's the cool. one thing that's really nice about. That's the one thing that's really nice about the community is that they're really trying their best to you know show you everything, right? To like right guide you through whatever. But if you wanted to do it this way with Kubernetes, then you could just pull down your Docker image and then toss it up on a Kubernetes cluster on DigitalOcean or something. Exactly. So what's the process then for building the Docker image with your with your code on it? So do yeah, you I use the Docker. You just build the Docker file with when you copy your. I've done this with Rails, right? And so you just tell it my code's here, and you put it in this folder here, and you run it right in your Docker file. Yeah, I use a two-step. Docker build. Okay. Yeah, I, I use a two-step. So what I do is the first one is using with, of course, with Phoenix, right? Doing mixed steps, skips, so getting all the dependencies, getting all your npm stuff. Mm-hmm. That's another disaster story I can talk about. That I, I yesterday <laughs> yesterday was basically like, I don't, what, what would you call that? Like ping pong? Like okay, now this problem's solved, but now we got a new problem. But yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. let's, let's talk about this stuff first. But yeah, so it's basically like one long command, like grab all my dependencies, grab all the NPM stuff. Now run the, you know, compile your assets, then compile your code to make a release. And then, yeah, then then the next step would be I'm taking a base Erlang container that I created, like I talked about, adding in my release, it's ready to go. And my releases don't include ERTS, which is the Erlang runtime system. Mm-hmm. And that's why I use the Erlang one. So that way I just have everything right there. So it's pretty right. pretty small, and then I just run that container, and then yeah, everything else is run with uh, environment variables, so it's easy to configure. So even even the you know how you have to set like the URL for what, where your website is, I set that one up with environment variables because you got your staging, you got your production, right? Maybe you have a dev too. You can mm-hmm. easily set up the domain names. Pretty straightforward. You just do that in environment variables. Yeah, everything I do is environment variables. It makes it easy. I'm, I mean, of course, there's other ways like config files, but. Environment variables, I think, are very straightforward. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything where I would need to have a file. I think even like if you're doing push notifications, you have to have like certificates and things like that. You have to push through, but you can even do that with environment variables. You can make them yeah. really big. I'm, I'm quite surprised how big you can make them. Yeah, interesting. So you just you just set all that up. You do the, your Docker build. You do the cube CTL. You push it all up to whatever Kubernetes you're running it on. And then I'm assuming the rest of it, you just configure up in the cloud and you say, hey, these are the containers that you're going to run traffic to. Yeah. So uh, the way Kubernetes works is that you have to install what they call, like I think it's called an ingress controller, which is basically Mm -hmm. like where you say, this domain name goes to this service. So maybe some of our listeners don't know Kubernetes, so I can kind of go over very quickly is that you have ingress, which is like routing from your domain name to your service. A service okay. is kind of like a a load balancer you can think of. And then you have something called a deployment. And deployment will schedule your pods. A pod is usually at least one container. Mm-hmm. And so basically the service, the, your, your, your request goes from ingress to service to a specific pod. Because you may have more than one pod, right? If you're running right. multiple instances and you have multiple nodes, right. you might want to scale it across. And so that's how the load balancing works. So if you if you want to like do A B testing, whatever, you would have to configure that within your service. If you want to, it, it the stack just follows like that. 
and then the nice part is that you can install this thing called cert manager and with that one you can just you know you get your certificates running it'll automatically turn on like a route and request and do all that kind of stuff for you and it sees that your ticket's running out of time and it'll auto renew it for you it's the best i mean managing certificates before was such a pain now it's just straightforward you just okay install this app and with gitlab right we talked about this just just recently yeah gitlab they have a one-click button so i add my eks cluster you want to install cert manager okay click this button okay clicked it okay ready it's ready to go it's going already yeah it's fantastic very cool now i kind of want to try it out i'm also curious to see how cost effective it is versus the vpss because some of these kubernetes clusters they tend to just charge you for the resources you consume instead of a like a straight up flat fee, you know, for just having the VPS running all the time. So I'm only spending about forty bucks a month on on uh, Do DigitalOcean. Mm-hmm. So I have one one uh, Postgres instance and mm-hmm. one node, one worker node running all my stuff. So the bad thing about that is when they go to recycle your nodes, where they like change them out with a new one, you'll have downtime. Right. But process is pretty quick. So and most of my stuff is not really intensive, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I don't mind if it goes down for a couple of minutes. It's fine with me. But the one thing I found out is never run stateful services, right? So all my apps are all stateless because right. I have my database outside, right? I highly recommend this mm-hmm. for anybody, especially if you're running on Amazon. So Amazon always has ABC zones. Mm-hmm. So the way stateful services work is that they have to take like, like another hard drive or whatever, and they have to attach it to it. But these drives are located either in ABC and they can't be used across. Right. So if you have a node that goes down in, so if you have one node in uh, A and one node in B and you have your drive in B that's running a stateful service and your Kubernetes will actually try to spin up the service in A for you because you don't control where they go. Right. Well, it'll never turn on because the drive is stuck in B. You can't oh. pick the drive up and move it across. <laughs> so you literally, you have a state broken stateful service and you, there's nothing you could do. You could just pray to God that maybe if I keep killing this pod, maybe it'll finally get go back into B. So that's why oh, I will never, ever again do this stuff. And and I think I tried talking to AWS about this and they were like, they didn't have any good remedy for this. I was a little bit surprised. Right. Or I missed what they were talking about. But I asked the guy, I said, yeah, I, I don't understand what's going on. So, so what you wind up doing is you put all your storage in in the other service so you're like your what are they called block storage or yeah like that. that's actually a service that's completely outside of pod service like s3 something like that yeah so, yeah well like well basically i never ever run stateful services ever again right. i don't want to deal with it no matter what it's just state, state having state is just annoying keep all your stuff on a vps or something run that outside that's that's my yeah. word of advice yeah makes sense well, and they encourage you to run that way anyway. I mean, when you set up your Docker images, say, on your local machine even, right, you want to be able to kill those and bring them back. And they, they, when you set them up, if you follow any of the tutorials, they tell you to set up volumes, which are directories, which are on your hard drive, so that all of that stuff lives off, yeah, away from the the actual machine. Because, yeah, you don't want to rely on that machine having to manage any of that state itself. What I was dying in was the block storage. Yeah. But the block storage is stuck in the zone, right? So that's yeah. the annoying part. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out how can I tag this service so that it's always in the same zone. So otherwise it's just it's yeah. not going to work out. Yeah. Makes sense. And then if the zone ever goes down, well, then you're really in, in a problem. You're really in, in an issue. So that's that's another annoying thing. I, yeah. 
I had an issue one time where I, I sat there. AWS came in and sat down with us and was talking to us about how to how to do something. And I asked them a question. I forgot what it was that was the problem. Oh, man, I, I, it's too early in the morning, but I asked the guy something, and I don't know about you, but I just don't have the time to read pages and pages and pages of documentation on Amazon. <laughs> I, I, everybody I've talked to is is the same feeling as me. I don't know. If, I'm sure. Yeah. I, 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 are you are you the same? Okay. But every time I talk to AWS, they always give me pages of links, which of course is more pages for me to read. Right. And then, but no, here's the funny part is like, these guys act like all we do is read stuff because I sat, I sat there in a room with two AWS reps, right? One sales guy, one tech guy. And I forgot what it was I had to explain to the guy. I said, yeah, we, we, we got hung up on this issue and I forgot what it was, but the guy, this is a serious thing really happened to me. The guy laughed in my face. He literally was laughing out loud in the meeting. I said, we got stuck on this thing for a week. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, everybody knows that it has to be like this and just started laughing. I said, man, I, I said, this is not funny. I'm not laughing. We took a week on this at all. This is not a joke. He shut up real quick, <laughs> real quick in front of everybody. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what I wish. That's the reason why I like to use DigitalOcean is because it's just click, click, click. You're ready to go. Everything is straightforward. The one bad thing about DO is the support is just a little bit too slow. Otherwise... Yeah. It's pretty, pretty, pretty smooth, I think. Yeah, that's, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, they have their chat support, but yeah, the turnaround time is not very quick and they don't have a phone number. You can just pick up the dial, right? When you need them. But yeah, I've talked to several people over there over the years because they've sponsored off and on and that's always been their thing. And I've run, to them, run into them at conferences too. And it's always been, oh yeah, we just want to make it so that it's, yeah, it's just click, click, easy, easy. And that that's always been the case for me too. And their their tutorials have been top notch, and they're usually pretty simple, right? It's hey, do this, do this, do this. Oh, you want this feature on there? Run this script. A lot of times, it's a script that they've written that they could they you can either have loaded onto your server, or you've is already loaded on your server and you just run it. And yeah, it's it's really really well done that way. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Really good about that stuff. They're, they're always pulling in new tutorials. And you know, yeah. if I remember correctly, this may have changed, but I think the one of the people... One of the editors, Brian Hogan, I think is an editor at DigitalOcean. Yeah. I don't know if he still is, but yeah, that Pragpag always has fantastic books. So I'm not surprised if they have top-notch docs, if he's kind of a part of that process. Yeah, he used to be a host on Ruby Rogues as well, Brian Hogan. Yep, terrific guy. Very but cool. What, what about your process of deploying, right? I know you don't always deploy Phoenix apps, but like, you know, how do you usually go? Do you have a specific format or, or kind of hosting you like to go for? So these days I'm usually on a VPS Rails. So usually it's Rails and I'm usually using either Puma or Fusion Passenger. One thing that's nice about DigitalOcean though is that they have the, they also have the marketplace. And so you can kind of just reach out and kind of grab their pre-made setup for some of this stuff. And so sometimes if I'm in a hurry, I'll just do that. Even though it's not always my ideal setup, it's just done fast. And it's, it's done for you. And so you can just deploy to it. And then there's 
there's kind of a script. It reminds me a little bit of your e-deliver. It's called Capistrano and it's, it's Ruby and it just shells into your machine through SSH and then just essentially runs a script. It's just a series of bash commands, right? It just does it through Ruby. And uh, so you can tell it what to run and what to symlink and what to connect to and all that stuff in order to set up and run your app. And so it'll just connect to your, and it'll, it'll work for anything, right? It's not just Ruby apps. And so to build your Elixir app, you could do the same thing. You just have to know what to run in order to do it. But you set up your SSH keys on your server so that it can do a deploy checkout. And you just set it up as a deploy key on your GitHub or GitLab or whatever, right? And then it just pulls the code down, runs the build, you know, and then it just does the update or it does the restart on Nginx so that it once it's pointed over to the new build and it just now it's running the new thing. It's pretty automatic, uh, runs really, really well. And uh, yeah, I've been pretty happy with it. I've been looking to get a little bit more into sort of the Kubernetes or Docker setup, especially since I've been running Docker for my development setup for the last six months. And I really, really liked it. And so I don't see any reason why not to, you know, kind of move in that direction with my deployment setup. I just haven't yet. Mostly because the things that I'm deploying have a pretty stable deployment setup right now. So I don't see any reason to change those, but anything new, I'm looking at, you know, moving in that direction. So, uh, yeah, that said, I mean, it's, it, it works really nicely and I've been really happy with it, but for the rest of it, yeah, you can also do kind of a setup deploy with Capistrano. And so then it'll go and it'll pull Ruby gems or whatever over, right? So you can tell it which packages to grab and how to do all that stuff. But honestly, I, most of the time, you know, I just do that by hand because it's really not that hard. And I only have to do it, do it every once in a while when I'm creating a new app and setting up a new server for it. So, yeah. What about when things do go bad? Like, how do you diagnose what could be the problem? Because, yeah, I could talk about what happened to me last night after you kind of give me your side. So that's another nice thing about Capistrano in particular is that you can do deploy rollbacks. So unless you've got like a database deployment, that was part of your deployment that you have to figure out how to roll back first. You can just do a rollback and it'll just roll back to the previous because it'll hold on to five deployments at a time. You can configure it to do more. And so figuring that out, I can roll it back and then I can just figure it out on my dev machine. And so that's pretty nice. But for the rest of it, I mean, I usually hook something up like Sentry or Raygun, you know, something like that. Uh, full disclosure, both of them are also sponsors. And I like them both. Um, I've used a whole bunch of others that are like that. And they, both of them have added, since they were first sponsors, have added the performance checking too, right? So they have performance tools in them now too, not just the error stuff. And so those are both pretty nice tools for that. I can't remember if either of them support Elixir, but they tend to support the other stacks that I'm pretty happy with them. Sentry definitely supports Elixir because I added it. I think they do. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's another one out there that supports Elixir as well, and I can't remember who they are. Anyway. New Relic is one. I wouldn't be surprised if, if what was the other one, Raygun? I wouldn't be surprised if they also support it. Yeah, I think AppSignal is the one that's coming to mind. I think they support it. Yeah. I don't think Raygun does. There is there is a Raygun client. I think it's third party. I'll put a link in the show notes. But yeah, that's usually pretty helpful for getting, those tools are pretty helpful for just getting your, it looks like they do support 
Yeah, I saw a blog post. They also kind of yeah. talked about it. Yeah, they're they're all great tools. I mean, you really can't go wrong. But yeah, all these tools really do a terrific job. But yeah, when it comes right down to it, those really help. The logging really helps just in general. It depends on what I'm looking for when things go wrong. Sometimes it's with, with the infrastructure, but most of the time it's my own code. And most of the time it's an actual, you know, honest to goodness, exception or error, right? It's not a it's not a weird thing that, you know, I actually need logging to track down, right? Um, it's something that I can typically reproduce on my own thing, on my own machine. So I can just track it down on my own if I if I know what I'm looking for. So those tools are usually enough. And so if I can just roll it back, that's usually plenty. So yeah, I'll just put a tool like that in place, put some monitoring in place so that I can watch it. Because the other, the other problem that I've run into in the past is uh, I'll fill up the hard drive or something stupid like that, right? It'll be creating files or I'll have the log files fill up the hard drive because I'll get more traffic than I expected or something dumb like that. And so then I have to go in and clear it out. And I think the one that I'm thinking of in particular is the system that builds the RSS feeds for the podcasts. It used to archive. So every time it built, every time it built the RSS feed, so when there was a new show, it would it would build a new RSS file and it would keep the old ones. It would archive them and it would fill up the hard drive. And so I'd have to go track down the problem and I go, oh yeah, and then I have to delete out of it. And so stuff like that, right? And so just having monitoring there to tell me, oh, hard drive's filling up. You know, you have to you have to have a look at that. You know, just stuff like that. Using tools for things like that. But yeah, it it really just boils down to knowing what issues are going to crop up and then having tools to watch for it. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, I think those kind of host specific issues are something that a little more trickier to to check, right? Too much CPU or like you said, hard drive space filling up. Yeah, I mean for the rest of it, just being able to roll back. I mean, you deploy, you go to the website and just give it a quick happy path run, which is something that I do anyway. We were talking about this beforehand too, right? You know, because some of my coworkers had deployed code and then it turned out that the deployed code would never actually <laughs> fully execute the way that it was supposed to, right? So I, I always run a happy path run before I deploy. And then sometimes I actually will break stuff and not realize it. And so I do a full happy path code after I deploy. And yeah. And just doing that much, yeah, just being able to roll back is pretty critical. And then these notifications are like Slack or somewhere so you can see it or, or anything? Not really. I usually get an email. So I get emails from the bug tracking software. That's not it. You're like me. You get, get tons of emails every day, right? That never is an issue. We may lose something. I get tons of emails. I get tons of emails from these two. It's funny because uh, usually there are a number of issues that are generating exceptions. It's just that a lot of them aren't visible to the user. It's just stupid stuff that I have in there, right? Because it's old code and it's whatever. And so occasionally I'll I'll run across one of those emails for whatever reason, right? I'll be just going through email and it'll pop up on my radar. And my brain will chew on it for a few hours while I'm doing something else. And then I'll realize what the problem is and I'll go fix it. And then I'll go from getting like 300 emails a day to going getting like, four emails a day from the bug tracking software because it's it's just a dumb thing right any issues from people trying to like fish information like uh, let me give you an example i sometimes see like people trying to do a get request to dot env in my root uh path or 
WP admin I get, I'm like, I, I don't handle these because I don't have a WordPress site and I get errors yeah. because they're trying to find stuff that just isn't there. I know. I. It's funny too, because sometimes I want to just, uh, in fact, I, I part of me wishes that there was like a, a library or something somewhere where it was like, if you knew where, if you knew what these extensions were, where these people trying to hack your website would hit, if you could just redirect them to some malicious website on the web somewhere or something, right? It's like, leave me alone and this website's going to stab you in the eye. I don't know. But yeah. Almost I, thinking I about that. putting in some fake files just to make them feel better. But I don't know. Maybe it's just kind of inviting trouble because you might just piss them off and then they'll just <laughs> go go crazy on you for trying to trying to play with playback with them, right? Yeah. And it's interesting too, right? Because I have a tendency to put... Now that I'm thinking about it, I have a tendency to put the administrative panel under slash admin, and I realized that I could probably put it under just about anything else, <laughs> and I'd be the only one that knew how to get there, right? Or anybody that worked for me, right? They just know, okay, don't go to slash admin, go to slash, because that's pretty guessable. I had a client before, they asked me to do like slash, just a bunch of letters and numbers that were uppercase and lowercase. Well, obviously numbers can't be uppercase, right? But a bunch of random text, and that that's fine, like you said. But yeah, yeah it means I mean, something to them. Yeah, of course. But for the most part, I mean, things are pretty smooth. Yeah, I mean, if you got people trying to find information from your site, then I think it's a good sign of that you're somewhat successful for your product. That's that's a good thing, I think. Or else you're not. Yeah. If nobody's fishing you, then at least you know, then you you're not so successful. I think. Yeah. Well, sometimes they're just looking for an outpost to launch other stuff from. So. Oh yeah, you mean like like a bot, right? Yeah. So a couple of years ago devchat.tv, I tried to log into the server and I couldn't get in. And eventually I wound up getting in through a different way. And it turned out that somebody had figured out the root password or something. They had gotten in, they had locked me out. And, you know, DigitalOcean just allows you to reset the root password. So I got in and it turned out that they had installed a Bitcoin miner on there and had been running it. So I had to shut it down, export all the data, and then basically move off or just you know redo the server i at that point trying to clean it off isn't is a an exercise of futility right because there's no way to know you've got everything and so yeah i just nuked it and moved yeah, that's exactly why using containers is nice or having your yeah. files ready to go you just okay no problem kill it apply apply yeah. apply or, or yeah or push get yeah. push all this stuff yeah and if they figured out whatever secrets let them in you just change the secrets I had somebody, so we, one of my clients has an intern and he's been helping us all out trying to get like, you know, small things, tech changes, things like that. That That's fine. Mm -hmm. Right. I'd rather focus on the higher level, more important kind of features. Oh, I hear you. We recently, you know, we, we have these configuration files and we, we just moved configuration outside of the, so we did a no, no, where we were committing codes, secret stuff into the repo. So I said, okay, we got to be serious because, you know, things just getting serious with this app. And so I moved the configuration files out. Well, I put it in the git ignore to ignore that directory, but when he went to merge in, he actually merged and committed the uh, configuration files. So that was a big issue, I think, because we're adding in more and more secrets. Right? It's not just like a century ISDN number or something, right? It's mm -hmm. like client secret for OAuth stuff, right? That's a big problem. So I had to, yeah, I had to have a big discussion with him. Like, hey, man, I, I gave you these files outside of the code because they're not supposed to be within the repo but you need them right. to actually run the app. Makes so sense. That's, yeah, that, there's just a couple of things that make me go nuts. And I think security is uh, a big one.
security is, is yeah. really important. Well, and it's it's tricky, right? I mean, somebody has to have the secrets, right? Whether you're putting them into your Kubernetes config, or whether you're putting them into environment variables somewhere, or whether you're putting them into a config file on your VPS, or um, environment variables on your VPS, or somewhere else, right? And and even like you get your your access key and secret from AWS, right? They give it to you once, right? So you have to record it somewhere so you can set up stuff, right? And and I think they want you to set it up every time you set up new access for a new stuff, right? So that you so you set up a new key and secret. Okay, now I have this other system talking to stuff, right? So you can shut it down granularly, but then you've got multiple levels of access for multiple things. And the other thing is, is there's such a breadth of API access that you're managing that you half the time I see people in all the tutorials say, okay, you're just going to turn on access all of S3, right? And anyway, so you, yeah, you wind up having your, your stuff on a file on your hard drive, even though that's not really the best thing to do with it. And so it's, it's hard, right? And then, yeah, you need somebody else to go set stuff up for you. So you get the credentials and you give them to them. And then they don't understand the best practice around it. And really, you just want it in the environment file or just in the config on whatever service you're setting up. And so, yeah, what is the happy place? That's tricky, too, because when it's just you and it's just your pet project, and so you can manage all that, that's one thing. But pretty soon, you know, when you're running a business like yours or like mine, there are going to be other people involved. Yeah, not even that. But like, for instance, when you set up a Kubernetes cluster within EKS, they're owned by that user. So, you know, you never use the root account except for logging in and creating mm -hmm. things or whatever, right? Or closing your account. Well, when you, when you, if each person has their own account, you have to try to ask them, hey, man, can you please add me as a user to your cluster? Because we're, <laughs> we're deploying right. all the apps, all that kind of stuff, right? So... And if they don't and they lose something, then wow, now you're in big trouble, right? So how do you like share these things efficiently? And as far as I know, there's no, I went looking through the docs for AWS and I didn't see any other way other than having to use the same account that owns that cluster to actually add more users to the cluster. Right. So yeah, now you're really screwed. So yeah, I, I, like I said, I'm all up for security, but like we need to make this in a way that makes sense. And that you, if you hurt yourself, you can somehow put a bandaid on it. You know, if I can just add, this cluster is no longer owned by a specific user, but they're owned by a group of users and I can easily add and remove people from the UI. That's what I want to do. I don't want to, to be so complicated. Yeah, and I was playing with some stuff on AWS just as an example too. And I set up a whole bunch of stuff. And then for like three months, I was getting charged like $300 a month for AWS bill. And then I'm like, whoa, 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 right? Yeah. Get charged for all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. This was all an experiment. And I and I'm trying to figure out like which eight services I turned on and where do I turn it off and not without screwing up the stuff that I actually am using. And then also when you go to see which services you're using, you have to check each and every single region because when yeah. I remember it's mm -hmm. only by region. So you're like, oh Jesus. <laughs> you're you're trying to go through all the regions that you think you're using. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it uh, takes forever. It's. I really wish things were simpler, but I, I don't know. I mean, these guys are smart, but at the same time, I don't know what the problem is. How, there's got to be a way to make this all easy for everybody. That's what I guess this light sale thing was supposed to be about, right? It's making 
hosting simpler, right? AWS LightSail. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I mean that, and that's what I like about DigitalOcean is they they have analog or analogs. They have audit logs. They have yeah, they have things that look a lot like the more common things that I use would use off of Amazon. Yeah. And Some so, S three and yeah, they have the block storage, they have the Kubernetes kind of thing, they have the VPS, they have... So for the handful of things that I would otherwise need, I can either set up a VPS or something, a Docker container or something else that will run that thing, and then I can kind of make up the rest, right? Or I can go use Amazon's version of it and just pass it over the internet. Yeah. Anyway, is there anything else that you feel like we ought to talk about? deployments yeah I, I think nowadays people are less and less kind of going to the vps like route but yeah. there's so much documentation out there and i think basically whatever way you choose i think that the deployment stuff is nearly solved within elixir even you know of course within mm-hmm. rails i think that but i i think you know my videos kind of go over most of the stuff They're a little bit old now but at the same time i think they're still pretty valid yeah i i, I don't think there's much else to say i think Definitely container route is the way to go. Even if you have one host with Docker, I think that's still better than going straight VPS. You know, give yourself less headache. Predictable environment that you can run. Yeah. The one issue I ran into last night that I wanted to bring up was that for some reason, when you want to package your assets, Webpack wasn't available to me. I don't know what happened. <laughs> the Webpack <laughs> command wasn't, wasn't showing up. So I had to like change it to be like Node. You know, and then look in node modules and find Webpack and then run it. That was my magic fix. It was working for like months, working for months. Then it just stopped. I just said, okay, we, we, the first issue actually that was FS events not working. But anyways, that's another mess. <laughs> it seems like every time node updates, it just cause the pain. Yeah. Uh, if you, yeah, if you can't it, have it sounds working. like, mm-hmm. yeah, but Webpack not working. It sounds like it was either not in your global path or not installed globally. I didn't change much. I literally just changed the container version. That was it. And just nothing was working. Anyways, I solved it. That's the most important part. Set it and forget it, right? Well, and that's the thing, too, is sometimes you just need to get it running, right? Figure out the rest of it. Well, I know what changes I made, so I'm pretty happy with it. I hope that, you know, we're done with this problem. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's do some picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, And I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. You have some picks? Sure. Actually, I only have one pick this week. I'm still going through it. That is Concurrent Data Processing in Elixir by Prague Prague. This book has been fantastic. For anybody who wants to get into how to process data in Elixir, right? You're talking about using it for processing some, some data, I think, just, just today, right? This book 
is fantastic. Like I learned so much about the task module. So when you spin up a, a process, right, you can use this thing called the task module. I learned so much in there. I, I was blown away. Fantastic book. Please buy it. Please use it. You will get 50 billion times worth knowledge out of it than I ever would imagine. Great book. That's really my only pick I have this week. I've been so busy with other things. Uh, what, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I've been under the gun with this stuff at work for the last two or three weeks as well. I do have a few picks. I've probably picked this the last few weeks, but I am just, I am neck deep in this this book and just everything that I'm getting out of it. It's who, not how. Have I, have I picked this the last few weeks? No? For this podcast, I don't recall. Okay. Well, I, I record, I don't even know how many picks or how many podcasts, but who, not how. It's uh, it's a book by Dan Sullivan and Dr. Benjamin Hardy. And anyway, it's it's a business book and it's based on Dan Sullivan's um, philosophy of who, not how. So the idea is and I'm just going to go into it really fast. But and this is a trap that I've fallen into over and over and over and over again because I'm not smart enough to figure this stuff out on my own. But instead of figuring out how to get something done, he advocates for figuring out who you should have get stuff done, right? And so I hear Alan talk about like interns and stuff like that. And I've actually been coaching Alan on some stuff. And he's like, oh, I'll have my intern do this or I'll have one of my employees do it. And I'm sitting there going, Alan's smart. He's smarter than I am. Because <laughs> some of this stuff, I'm like, I'm, like, I'm going to figure out how to get there. No, no, that's not the way to go. And so the first, I've been listening to it on Audible. So I've cracked the book open, but I haven't actually been re-reading it. I've been listening to it. But I I have been so blown away by it that I'm actually going to be going through it and like picking out the actual lessons from it. But so he talks about freedom of, does he talk, start with money or time? He starts with one and then he goes into the other. I think he starts with freedom of time and then he goes into freedom of money. Yeah, freedom of time, freedom of money, freedom of relationship, freedom of purpose. And... So he talks about just freedom of time and just being able to get more done, right? And and that's kind of the obvious, you know, when you're not doing the day-to-day mundane tasks that any idiot can do in your business, right? And it's the same in life, right? So just to give an example, and you can all laugh, you can all laugh, right? So I'm, I'm a smart programmer guy, and my air conditioner quit working on my house, and I fixed the air conditioner on my house before many, many times. And so the the fan motor quit running on my air conditioner. And so I went and I bought a new fan motor and I put it on my air conditioner and it was spinning and the the air conditioner just was not cool in the house. It was running. We go stand there and you can you can see that it's running and you can hear the compressor that's pumping Freon through the you know the condenser and yeah, it's all sounds like it's working, right? And finally, I just gave up. And I'm reading this book, right? So uh, I'm going, all right, I'm just going to I'm going to hire a who, right? Instead of spending hours trying to figure out why this dang thing is not cooling. The, we have two floors. We have two air conditioners, right? So it's not excruciating, right? Because you can go upstairs and it's cool. So the guy comes over here and he I think he spent a half hour looking at our air conditioner, right? And uh and then he leaves, right? And my wife paid him 200 bucks for coming and looking at our air conditioner. And the capacitor, and I've replaced the capacitor like eight times on the other one, right? 
And we have two of them in our garage. So we bought a new capacitor, which we did not need to do. Replaced the capacitor, and I had wired the fan motor backward on our air conditioner. So it was spinning the wrong way, right? This is a simple motor. So if you have the if you have the current going through it one way, it spins one way. And if you have the current going through it the other way, it spins the other way. If, if you hire the right who, then it gets fixed right the first time. You don't spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours trying to anyway. So uh, that's one lesson. But the other thing is, is that I've, I've also realized that I have this, and this is the last one, the freedom of purpose, is there's this, I feel like I have this difference that I can make in the programming community. And I feel like I'm always chasing these things that I am trying to get done. And I'm spending all this time trying to fix the nuts and bolts of the podcasts instead of working on this higher purpose for what I'm doing. And that's what really hit me was when I realized that I could have more time to work on the things that matter to me. I could be making more money by spending more money hiring the people that could be doing the things that really are expanding the possibilities for devchat.tv, right? I could be spending time building more relationships with the people who are going to help bring more to devchat.tv. And then I could be doing more for the purpose that I feel like I have for this. That's where the money is. That's where the real power is. And so anyway, I know this is a programming podcast and I'm kind of preaching impact and business. But if you're working on open source or a conference, or you feel like you have something to offer the programming community, the Elixir community, or anybody else, and you're out there trying to figure out how to do something else, right? You're trying to figure out how to get the test to pass on your open source software instead of how to get people to use the library that's going to change their lives or how to show up at the conference that's gonna make a difference in their career, then find somebody else to get the test to pass and go out and do the other stuff to get people to show up, right? That's what I'm talking about. And that that's what I'm picking up out of this book. So that's my pick is just this book, um, Who Not How, because that's the big thing. And uh, anyway, that, that's what's been kind of rattling around in my head lately is just this, Find the people because there are people that love to make dust pass that don't feel like they have this calling out there, right? And they're happy to help be a part of yours. So, yeah. Who not how? Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy. We have one more pick, I think, that has uh, also been helpful for me. So, I'll be real quick. Brian Tracy, Eat That Frog. Have you heard that book? Oh, before? yeah. Yeah. Good this ABCDE kind of method, I think, is fantastic. Yeah. I, I used to use it for a while. I got to get back to it. You know, A is your most important things you have to do. B is similar to A, but they're like minor consequences. So maybe if you if you can contact somebody tomorrow instead of contacting them today, but you still have to contact them. I think that's what that is. C is something like, you know, if you want to catch up with your buddy or something, that's super important. But, you know, you do that if once A and B tasks are done. D is for delegate, which is kind of like what you talked about. Mm-hmm. Whatever I can give to somebody else to do do it it's much better if it doesn't require something very specific from you e eliminate i think that's not even something we should even talk about it's not something that you need to do just remove it so but i definitely follow this abcd thing i used to do it a lot more but i need to get back into it i'm getting too busy now but i think it's similar to what you're talking about right if you can delegate to somebody else do it Uh, something that you have to do get it done as soon as you can yeah uh that that brings me to two more that i'm gonna throw out then one of them is a book kind of the same idea 
It's called Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. And it, his uh, is, there are five of them and they're all something eight. So it's like delegate, procrastinate, I can't remember, eliminate, but it's the same idea, right? And then the other one is, and this is something that I've started using recently. I'm probably going to get a bonus episode on it soon because I love it to death. It's Focus Blocks. And this is something put together by my friend Manny. But you just schedule an hour and you actually just put it on your calendar. And uh, what it is, is it's actually a product that he put together. You see, you put it on your calendar, you schedule it in using Calendly, and then you show up to a Zoom meeting and they start the meeting and you you declare what you're going to get done in that hour. And they tell you to put your phone outside the room, right? And then you just work on it solid for an hour. You leave your camera on for accountability rights so that everybody can kind of see that you're working. They they turn off the sound, right? So you're you're not bugging anyone else. Nobody's going to bug you, right? But then at the end of the hour, so you get about 50-ish minutes of solid work, focused work. And then at the end of the hour, then they make you stand up and stretch and move, right? Then you do another hour, right? But it's that same idea, right? So if you have those A things, right, that, that Alan's talking about, then you put your phone down, you turn off all your distractions, you shut off social media, and you just do a focus block for an hour. And if you need another hour, you do another hour. And you just schedule that time for yourself to just get her done. Just get it done. And if you go to devchat.tv slash focus, that'll take you to a page where you can sign up for it. But it's pretty darn cool. So anyway, and then I guess I have one last pick. I realized about five minutes in that I didn't check the inputs on this call. And I never switched it over to my good mic. So I apologize. For that. Hey, I was hearing some noise right now. So makes sense. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you all for coming. Till next time, thanks out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.